0: Good morning. Let's pray before we get into God's word together. Lord, thank you for gathering us together today. Lord, we thank you for your word that calls us forth, that shapes us and moves us. Lord, would we hear your word afresh today to the glory of your name. Amen. In the fourth or fifth century BC, in Greece, there was a man that changed the world or so we think. His name was Socrates. Socrates, if you know who he was, was a teacher who was eventually executed for corrupting the youth, but really all he did was walk around asking questions, but his questions were always pointed to what he believed to be true. And he would always get into these debates with these people called the sophists who were just out trying to make money, or so Socrates claimed. And Socrates' general idea was this. The world that we see, the world of change, isn't the most fundamental reality that there is. Rather, the changeless world of the ideals that exist in the heavenly spheres, that is what our mind is meant to be drawn towards. That is the nature of goodness, beauty, and truth that compels a truly fulfilled life. But the fact is, we actually know very little about what Socrates said because we get almost everything he said through a man named Plato. Plato wrote in the form of dialogues in which he would utilize Socrates as this speaker and teacher that would debate the sophists. Now, Plato was Socrates' student, but the question remains, is this actually Socrates talking or is it just Plato utilizing Socrates? Now, it's a rather wise thing to do because remember, Socrates got killed for corrupting the youth, so Plato always has plausible deniability. I'm just quoting Socrates here, guys. But the question has remained over the course of history, is it re- do we really know anything about Socrates, or are we really just reading Plato, utilizing Socrates as his mouthpiece? But you know what, it really doesn't matter, it doesn't. Because at the end of the day, Socrates or Plato, they're talking about something outside of themselves. They're talking about a theory and an understanding of the world, but theoretically somebody else could have come to all those same conclusions, and it wouldn't indicate whether it was any more true or any less true. Because at the end of the day, they're looking at something beyond themselves. Many world religions are like this too. Confucianism could exist without Confucius because somebody else could have come up with the same understanding and laws of life. Buddhism could exist without the Buddha because somebody else could theoretically have come up with the exact same way of achieving enlightenment. Let me give you one that's somewhat controversial. You could even have Judaism without Moses because at the end of the day, the law was given to Moses. It is something outside of him. But at the end of the day, you cannot have Christianity without Christ. Because at the end of the day, he is not talking about something external to him. Rather, the founder of our faith, the originator of our faith, at the end of the day, continually points back to himself as the fulfillment of our faith. A Christless Christianity, a Christianity that is distilled into morality or a set of philosophical principles is a contradiction in terms because Christianity by its very nature is not about a set of propositional realities out there, although we do have propositional realities, we affirm, but is fundamentally about a concrete reality with a name, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Today, as we continue in our series through the book of Romans, which I am thrilled to be preaching with you all. If you didn't know, we're starting Romans. We're in week two, and I do believe we got last week recorded, if you missed it. But it's going to be really fun, and you might say, oh man, Tim's about to be like full tilt Tim, and I'm not, like we're going to be in theology every week, and he's going to cry three times a week, and we're going to quote Calvin eight times a week. All accurate. (laughs) All accurate. (laughs) But I can't wait. I've been putting this off my whole life. I can't wait. But here's what we're gonna do today. We're gonna look back at Paul's intro again, okay? And I want to look at it. He's talking about the gospel of God, and he says the gospel of God concerning his son. We often think about the gospel as a set of propositional truths. We might say something like, you know, Jesus died for your sins, was buried in a grave, rose three days later to bring you into everlasting life. That is accurate. That is accurate. That is a a true way you can communicate the gospel. But remember, at the end of the day, the gospel is fundamentally about a person. Jesus is the concrete living testimony of God to us. And so I wanna look at Paul's introduction and look at three things. First, Jesus is the living announcement or gospel that God has a son. He is the living announcement that God has a son, and that changes everything. Second, Jesus is the living announcement that our God resurrects his children out of death. He does not leave his children in death, but brings them to life. And third, Jesus is the living announcement that we have a king that we belong to. So, if you would, turn with me to Romans 1 1 through 7. Where we are going to look at Jesus as the announcement, the living announcement of the good news. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God, When Paul defines the gospel of God, what does he say? It is concerning his son. At the heart of the good news is the reality that God has a son. Now, we just take that completely for granted. But that is a revelation itself. Outside of Christ being revealed to us, born amongst us to show us who God is, we would have no concept that God has a son. At the end of the day, we're monotheists, for goodness sakes. That, that's not intuitive to assume then that God could also have a dynamic relationship between father and son, and yet so it is. The early church debated this a great deal. Um, the theologian Athanasius, who was a North African theologian, and he was rather short in stature. Uh, He he was, uh, yeah, an incredible individual. He would debate what were called the Arians. And the Arians argued that Jesus is the son of God, but only by adoption. At his baptism, he becomes the son of God, but he's created in some way. There was a time in which the father was not the father. And Athanasius said, that doesn't make any sense, okay? I love it when sometimes someone just stands up and says, that doesn't make sense, right? That's what we need more of in the world. That doesn't make sense because we all agree that God is changeless, right? He can't change. He is simple, unified, and whole. And guess what? This is shocking. Even the heretics of the early church agreed with that, okay? Many modern evangelical theologians don't believe that anymore to their own detriment. I don't know why It has fallen into fashion to believe God can change. Even the heretics knew God can't change. God is perfectly whole and complete in himself, and he's named Father. Huh. If he's named Father and he doesn't change, God must always be Father. And if God is always Father, that must mean he always has a son. Now, of course, this isn't just a philosophical argument. It's actually rooted in scriptures because the enemies of Jesus knew that that's exactly what Jesus was claiming about himself. Because in John 5, 18, the Jews seek to stone Jesus because he calls himself God's son. And that means that he is claiming to be equal with the father. Look at the passage. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So what we see here is that in Christ Jesus, there is a revelation, a revealing of a good news, that in the eternal reality of God, there is a perfect relationship between father and son. But that's not a given that it's good news, right? Because if we think of, you know, in our world, there's a lot of relationships between father and sons, fathers and daughters that aren't ones you wanna have forever, right? You wanna be liberated from that relationship, not eternally brought into that relationship. Or you look at the history of kings and their sons and what often happens. The son kills the father in order to get the throne. Is there a dynamic of, of, of uh, conspiracy going on in the life of God? No. Because what we also see revealed to us in the New Testament in 1 John 4.16, is that God is love. It does not say that he happens to love. It doesn't say that he falls in love or out of love like we do. He says the very act of God in his very being is love. And Romans 5.5 later shows us that love has a name, the Holy Spirit. The one who, when he is poured into our hearts, it is said that the love of God is poured into our hearts. So we see in the perfect life of the Trinity that the father gazes upon his perfect son and loves him perfectly. The son gazes upon his father as the fountainhead of all being and adores him in perfect love. And this love breathes forth a third, named the Holy Spirit what we see is that Jesus gives us a glimpse into the Trinity and at the very heart of who God is is a perfect relationship of father and son and perfect love for one another. At the very center of existence, at the very center of being itself is love. Love. And the good news that we see revealed in Christ Jesus is that this God, who is the perfect love between Father and Son, which breathes forth the Spirit, chose to pour forth that love to create us, and when we had fallen into death, recreate us. His love. Is what compels him. His love is what moves him. At the heart of God is not wrath, it is not damnation, it is not rejection, but is initiating, sustaining, redeeming love. This is why 1 John 4 is one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. It says this Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, meaning that, that's the way he's saying God shows his love among us, that God sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, meaning we love him first, then he'll love us back. Nope. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Jesus Christ is the living revelation of the good news. And what does he show us? He shows us what it looks like for God to love his children. This is why your testimony matters. It does. We share our testimonies. And that matters because we can see each other and hear our pains and our sorrows and our griefs. But you know that we all actually have the same testimony at the end of the day. The same story that brings about our salvation is the entire life of Christ Jesus. The revelation of the good news of God to bring us into life and bring us back into the Father's love the first thing that Jesus shows us by his living gospel is that our father loves us. And if we place our faith faith in him, all of that love that is showered upon the son is now showered upon us as sons and daughters of God. And as I've shared with you many, many times, my job is to remind you of that because that is the hardest thing in the world to truly believe that God's fundamental relationship with you is not wrath, is not disappointment, is not, well, if he gets his act together, then I'll maybe kind of like him, but it's the perfect love between father and son. But let's continue. What else do we see about the gospel in the beginning of Romans 1? Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through the prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. What does the resurrection preach? A lot of things. I just wanna list two, okay, about who Jesus is. First, we serve the kind of God who dies for his people. So often we see in our world kings that make their people die for them and we are called to be a living sacrifice so there is some image of that in the scriptures too put that aside for one second at the heart of the gospel is the announcement that our god our king chose to die for us lest we forget why jesus was in a grave to begin with he shouldn't have been he was there simply to take our place the first thing we see about who Jesus is, what he is preaching is that he is the kind of God who takes our place in the grave. But second, and this is what I want to focus on today, we serve a God who doesn't leave his children in the grave. When our God saw his son in death, what did he do? He brought him to life. Robert Jensen is a Lutheran theologian. And Robert Jensen is brilliant, but I don't recommend you read him because he's wildly problematic on certain things. But he was great at having turns of phrases. And here's one that I've always appreciated. Jensen said this, God is whoever raised Jesus from the dead, having before raised Israel out of Egypt. God is whoever raised Jesus from the dead, having before raised Israel from Egypt. Who is our God Our God is the kind of God who resurrects things to life. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. (laughs) What is one of the prime images we see all over the Old Testament? Women in profound grief because they can't have children. Their womb is barren, there is death. It is a living death. It's the greatest shame she could go through, it's the greatest loss she could experience and what does God do? He gives life. Eve in her tears is restored to joy. We see that again and again in the history of God's people. He sees someone in death and raises them to life. He sees Israel in the bondage of Egypt. And what does he do? He conquers their captors. He leads them through a death of the Red Sea into resurrection life on the other side. And most importantly, we see in our Lord Jesus Christ that when he died for the sins of his people, the one who is life himself restored life to his very son in order to conquer the grave. And the promise of Christ Jesus Jesus is his story is our story. This is what we see in John 6, 40, when Jesus himself said, this is the will of my father. Do you want to know the heart of God for you? Do you want to know the will of God for you? The desire of God for you. We all have desire for our kids, don't we? Like I have a vision for my son's life, right? Both of my sons. And I have to continually submit myself to say, that's not my job. God, it's your job to have a vision for my son's life. But God's vision for your life, his will for your life is this, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What is the nature of our God? He is the redeeming, resurrecting, life-giving God. And that's true for you today. I, uh, did any of you watch the HBO biopic series John Adams? Did any of you watch that? I liked it a lot. I thought it came out yesterday. It was 2008. <laughs> uh, as I'm pushing 40, I realize, oh, things I thought were everybody knows, that was yesterday, they weren't. Um, it's with Paul Giamatti. Paul Giamatti's the main character. He's John Adams. I like Paul Giamatti. He's a great actor but I like him for other reasons. I like him because it reveals to me that you don't have to look like Brad Pitt to be excellent at things. <laughs> and I'm not very Pitt-esque, so I tend to appreciate guys like Paul Giamatti who can be excellent at things and look like me and Paul Giamatti. So anyway, uh, this, uh, this, this series, I think is based on, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, it's based on a very popular biography of John Adams, and I like John Adams. My my wife was raised in the land of the states' rights uh, leaders, Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe. They were always pushing towards states' rights. But Adams and Hamilton, they were always arguing, hey, we need a good centralized government too. So Adams is this brilliant person who helped balance uh, our government and helped lead to what we have today. So I think he's a rather special figure. But his personal life is a little more complicated. For starters, he was a heretic, he was a deist, so that's complicated in itself. But he also has a pretty mixed track record as a dad. On the one hand, his son John Quincy Adams became president. Kind of a cool thing, right? You know, we've seen that a few times in our history in this country. But he had another son named Charles. And Charles uh, was an alcoholic. Charles uh, struggled. He squandered every penny he had every time he had it. And there's a scene. Uh, I don't know if this scene actually occurs, but the events did, uh, where John Adams goes to Charles. I believe they're in Boston. Uh, it's a. It's, I can't remember where it is, but it's a really sad scene. You know, he's over, His life is ruined, and he's asking his father for help. And what you think is going to happen is this is a. This is a prodigal son's story, right? As the father sees the prodigal son returning home, he runs to him, clothes him, throws a party for him. That's the story of the gospel. But in this scene, it's always stuck with me because it was so grievous. What Adams does is he goes and finds his son in a grave and he seals the tomb on him. He says, you're no longer my son and you no longer have a home to come to. And it always struck me that this is the exact opposite of the parable of the prodigal son. And God tells us that's not who he is, but that deep down is who we always are afraid he is to me. He might be the one that accepts you back he might be the one that throws you a party when you repent. But for someone like me, I'm the Charles Adams. I'm the one that he's going to seal the tomb on. I'm the one that he will forget in death. And what we see announced in the life of Christ Jesus is the words that are hard to believe, but we long for so desperately, and they are true, that if you are in Christ Jesus, he does not seal the tomb on you, he breaks it open. That is your story. That is the story that the devil will never tire of trying to get you to doubt. And that is the only story that will set you free and bring you into life that the kind of God we serve does not tell us to resurrect ourselves, but says, I will come and bring you into life. And we see this announced in the very life of our Lord Jesus Christ. First, we see him announcing in his life that God has a son, and therefore he has sons and daughters who he loves. And second, that he raised his son from the grave and he will raise his sons and daughters with him. And finally, and this one's harder for us to understand a little bit, or we can misunderstand it. Jesus reveals to us that now we finally have a Lord. Here's what you will hear people say. Beware of people like Tim. He preaches grace too much. And what that's gonna do is give you all excuses to sin a bunch, right? Well, let's see what Paul has to say to that. Romans 1. we have received grace in apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, what we see announced in the life of Christ is that he is our king and we belong to him. And what we see is that faith in Christ Jesus must lead to spirit-empowered obedience. Because if we see him as he truly is, the one person whom we belong to where we will be secure, he is the one more person that we will actually follow and seek to obey. If you actually look at, you know, verse one, it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. This is a translation of the word doulos, which uh, we tend to translate servant. And we tend to translate it servant in our country for very understandable reasons, because we have a history in our country of the demonic and evil practice of slavery. And so anything that might appear to be a uh, justification for slavery We distance ourselves from, understandably, for missiological reasons, right? However, in the New Testament, Paul repeatedly refers to us as doulos, which means slaves of Christ. And at the end of the day, I think we are understandably concerned to not use that language too much because in our past it has been abused to then justify the existence of slavery. However, I do wonder if I actually think that is the right missiological decision, by the way. This is why we use the ESV that uses the word servant. Um, But at the end of the day, every human being was meant to belong. We were meant to belong to our spouse. A husband belongs to his wife, and if he doesn't, something has gone wrong. Our children, we say, belong to us, right? In the ancient world, people belonged to a king, and whether they were treated with dignity and freedom depended on how good that king was. When you say you belong to your spouse, how much you are of yourself is how your spouse treats you. Your child becomes fully themselves when they belong to one who guides them to become who God made them to be. And what we see revealed in Christ Jesus is the truth that the one place where we belong and we do not become less free, but we become more free is under the authority of Christ Jesus the more we are led to belong to him, the more his spirit moves within us to follow his laws rather than our own. It doesn't limit our freedom. It doesn't make us less of ourselves. Rather, that is the one place where we can actually belong and be cared for. This is the one leader who will never lead us astray, the one leader who will never tell us a lie, the one leader who we can be completely confident in his integrity, the one place where we can truly be set free. Have any of you noticed how politics has saturated everything now, right? You know, uh, sports is politics now somehow. I thought that was the thing that was supposed to unify people, not anymore, right? Um, our churches are political now. Thing I thought was supposed to unify people, doesn't anymore, um, our, our sense of identity and tribe is marked by politics today. And I think why is because we have rejected Jesus as our king, and we are looking for kings. We are looking for someone to belong to, someone that defines who we are and establishes what our understanding of the good life is. And because we have rejected Christ as our king, we have just sought out a new king. And this is why we are chronically frustrated with our politics, why? Because that can't be your king the one place where you can truly be set free, the one place where when you follow, you know you are being led into truth, the one place where when we gather around this king, all of these other markers in the world that say we're in and you're out, fade away as we gaze upon this one king. What we see in the face of Christ Jesus is the good news that we finally belong to someone who will bring us into true freedom. And true life. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the living, breathing proclamation of the good news. And his good news is revealed to us that God has a son and therefore he will adopt us as sons and daughters into his love. It is revealed to us that our father does not leave his sons and daughters in a grave, but raises them to life. And the face of Jesus reveals to us our true king. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have revealed to us the goodness of God. Lord, would our eyes turn to you Lord, when we are tempted to make our faith about anything other than you, would we repent? Lord, when we are tempted to turn our gaze to anything other than you, by your spirit, would you show us yourself again and again? Lord, would you show us your love? Lord, would you show us your resurrecting power? And Lord, would you lead us and give us your spirit that we might follow to the glory of your name? Amen.